You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Good evening. Turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 25 as we seek to be satisfied in God's love in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Adam, praise team. And we just have the best youth choir on the planet. And thank you all for serving us so well. Yes, because it's not easy. You know, when you're a teenager standing up in front of everybody and singing, I'm 55, I don't want to do that. So uh, just, I have the highest respect for all of you who put so much work into that. Well, let's pray and uh, we will ask the Lord to continue to bless our time. Thank you, Lord. Uh, Indeed, we we ask you tonight, satisfy us with your steadfast love in Jesus Christ through the preaching of your word, even as you have satisfied us through the singing of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. You know, one of the purposes of the death accounts of the people of God in Scripture is to drive home to every believer that we're all headed for the same exit as far as this life is concerned. And wisdom tells us that we have to and must remember that this is not our home. We are strangers and exiles here. But we have, as Hebrews tells us, a better country that is a heavenly one that awaits. The unbeliever has no worldview to process that. This is their best life now. This is as good as it gets for the unbeliever. Consider these thoughts from Woody Allen. I always see the death's head lurking. I could be sitting at Madison Square Garden at the most exciting basketball game and they're cheering and everything is thrilling and one of the players is doing something very beautiful and my thought will be he's only 28 years old and I only wish he could savor this moment in some way because this is as good as it's going to get for him. The fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and against death. It's absolutely stupefying in its terror. And it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. Sounds like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? It's not only that he dies or that man dies, but that you struggle to do a work of art that will last and then realize that the universe itself is not going to exist after a period of time. That's the unbeliever's worldview if he or she is being truly honest with themselves. And though the believer can in this life taste and see that God is good, we understand that God's goodness 
toward us will ultimately be realized in the next life, not this one. And it's for that life that God is preparing us now. Eternity is a lot longer than 70, 80, or 90 years. That really gets at the heart of Genesis 25 as we read of Abraham's death, but also of the hope, yes, that Abraham dies, but he dies in hope, but also a hope that he experiences and a blessing that he experiences even in death. That brings us to the first part of Genesis 25, God's blessing on Abraham in life. Verse one, Abraham took another wife, so Sarah has died, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. So he had to wait a long time with Sarah for, for babies. But when God's hand, when God sovereignly determines it's time, the babies start coming, right? Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan, sons of Dedan, were Asherim, Letushim, and Lumen. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. So just before his death are listed the names of Abraham's six sons by his wife Keturah. And following his death comes the names of Ishmael's 12 sons. Because we don't want to skip any portion of scripture, let's read those. Make sure you pronounce them correctly. Verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaoth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Advil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Nafish, and Gadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. And so you have these genealogies on each side, uh, which, what is their significance? First of all, it reminds of the historicity of the Bible. One distinction among many of the Judeo-Christian faith and every other religion it is it's grounded in history. There was no history, then it's not true. And Paul says, if Christ was not raised from the dead, our faith is futile. We let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So our faith is grounded in history, not myth, not saga, real history. But also what we see here 
is the, the promise of the blessing, the promise that God had made to Abraham. Look towards heaven, he had said in Genesis 15, 5, and number the stars. In other words, you can't number the stars. And if you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. But with that said, there was only one son that would be the line of promise. Verse five, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. This is his inheritance, the land. This is Isaac's. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son eastward to the east country. So we know that Abraham had really struggled over the issue of his inheritance for a long time. He loved Ishmael. And he longed for Ishmael to be the son of promise, if you remember that. But God had said, no, Isaac is the one through whom the promise, the blessings would come. He was the heir and Abraham now at the end of his life, he understands that. Sanctification is long, it is lifelong, it is painful. But prayerfully, at the end of your life, you are godlier and have a stronger faith than you have when you first were converted. And we see this with Abraham making some hard decisions in this passage. Now, why do you do that? Well, most likely in order to prevent any kind of battle over the land, which was given to Isaac. And so the other sons are sent away. But the text makes it clear they are provided for. He, it says that he gave gifts. We don't know what the gifts are, but he takes care of them. A godly man leaves an inheritance to his children and his children's children. But Isaac is the one who is the heir. One scholar in the 16th century said that this would be, this is even in the 16th century when life was much harder than now, this would be a terrible way to treat children today. If you did this in your own family, you would all but guarantee that your children would be at war with each other. There would be great sibling rivalry. But remember, Abraham is one of a kind. He is the father. He is the constitutional father of God's people. And so this is a one-of-a-kind issue. And he does this because God had said, Isaac is the heir. And so I, Abraham's actions here are not the actions of a father showing favoritism. They're the actions of a father who is believing the promise. And so we learn here that common grace blessings are given uh, by God to everyone. But covenant blessings, salvific blessings are given by God to those who are his heirs. It's an important principle. So we see God's blessing on Abraham in life. That brings us to the heart of the passage. God's blessing on Abraham in death. Verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. You know what that means? That means he has lived in the land for 100 years. 
because he was 75 when he was brought into the land, when he left Ur the Chaldeans. So he's lived in this land. And it also means that God has been faithful to his promise because God had told him all the way back in chapter 15, verse 15, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. But notice verse eight. And I find this so deeply encouraging. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Now, do you catch that? He was gathered to his people. He's going to be buried in a tomb with Sarah, not his people. He's going to be buried in a tomb in Machpelah, not with his people. But here it says he's not even being buried in going to Sarah's bones, but to his people. This seems to be saying the, the living fellowship of the redeemed. And yet he's not buried with his ancestors. He's buried with Sarah. A lot of people ask me, will we recognize each other in heaven? Do you lose your identity in heaven? Did Jesus? Jesus didn't lose his identity in heaven. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses was still Moses. Elijah was still Elijah. And the disciples recognized them in some fashion we don't understand. Maybe Jesus told them, this, this is Elijah and Moses. We don't lose our identity. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not was, he is. So we can infer here that yes, heaven will be first and foremost about the worship of the triune God. But there's secondary benefits. And one of those is it will be a reunion of the saved. I find that deeply encouraging. I've lost some dear loved ones, and you have as well. But again, let me read that. Verse 8, he was gathered to his people. So who were his people that Moses speaks of here? Well, in the context of Genesis, there's been this godly line traced beginning with Seth, the appointed one. That's what his name means. And we read of people like Enosh and Jared and Enoch, Methuselah, Noah, and Shem. All of these were from the godly line. These would have constituted Abraham's people. He didn't know most of them, but they were his people. Now remember, Abraham has lived as a pilgrim. He has lived as a sojourner. Uh, he didn't have his own home. He, he recognized his, his home awaited him. And that can be isolating for a believer in a world opposed, can it? It can be very isolating to be a believer in this world. Because unbelievers don't understand us. I was at a high school baseball gathering a few, week, a few days ago. And one of the parents, one of the fathers came up to me. I was talking to another father. And he said, listen to Brian, he can save you. Well, he was being facetious. 
But I couldn't let that go. I said, I'm not the Savior. There's only one Savior. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you're in that world, you can often feel isolated, right? All of you have experienced that. Well, at Abraham's death, he would never experience isolation again. He was gathered to his people. That's our future as well, eternal future. Alexander McLaren says this, we are here like travelers plodding lonely through the night and the storm, but soon to cross the threshold into the lighted hall full of friends. Amen. That's a glorious statement. We have a a hall full of friends awaiting us. Dwight L. Moody was dying. And his daughter Emma was praying that God would restore his health. And he kindly rebuked his his, his daughter Emma. Here's what he said. No, no, Emma, don't pray for that. God is calling. This is my coronation day. And his son said, you're dreaming, father. And then Moody replied, no, this is no dream. I have been within the gates. I have seen the children's faces. And most people believe that he was referring to his children who had died at birth or early as infants, as many did in that day. How great is the contrast of believers and our hope with the Woody Allens of the world. And there are a whole lot more Woody Allens, it appears, than believers. Those whose hopes are in the here and now. Whose God is earthly pleasures, earthly accomplishments. For the unbeliever, death is not a gathering. It's a separation. I've heard pagans say, I want to go to hell. That's where all my friends are going to be. No, there's not going to be fellowship in hell. It will be isolation. Jesus said to those in Matthew 25, 41, those who do not embrace him, those who do not hide in him, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. And that should cause us to ask, every single one of us, who are our people? When the preacher is speaking at your funeral, will he be able to say in good faith, he or she breathed his last and died and was gathered to his or her people? Of course, the question there that this might provoke is, who are your people here? Important question. Who are your people here? Are your people the people of God? Are the people you most comfortable with, those who, who love the triune God, love his word, and pursue righteousness, and have high conviction, or are your people those who are strangers to his holiness. 
Sobering question. Well, the account of Abraham's death closes with uh, two estranged half-brothers who are reunited in their grief, at least for a time. And every parent here understands they long for their children to be close. Maybe this played a role in, in their friendship and reconciliation. This is part of the blessing, I think, for Abraham and death. Verse 9. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. The field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. We're reminded here, as we were with Sarah's burial, Sarah's burial, that uh, of the practice of honorably burying the bodies of the people of God, which signals this is not the end of the story. We await the resurrection. Notably, these two sons who are clearly at odds set aside their grievances for a moment at least to bury their father. That brings us to the last word on Abraham's life, which is actually a word of blessing on his son, Isaac. Every parent here would, I think, agree with me that you, though you want God's blessing, for sure, you'd rather your children have that blessing than even yourself. And you see this here in the last verse of the text we're going to look at. So we've seen God's blessing on Abraham before death, in death, and here after death. Verse 11. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. So God's hand of favors on Isaac. This is going to become the theme of the next 10 chapters. God's hand of blessing and favor on Isaac. So we will read about this theme all the way from here to chapter 35, verse 29. And how fitting, in the last word on Abraham's life in the Genesis narrative declares the divine blessing on his son, on his heir. This is the cry of every believer's heart. Bless my children, Lord. There's probably no day that a parent in here, a believing parent, doesn't pray that in so many words. Bless my children. What we often pray is save my children or sanctify my children or satisfy my children in Jesus Christ. So many words, we are praying, God bless our children. It's the heart cry of every parent. Of course, this blessing on Abraham's heir is again one of a kind. Maybe you've heard that Latin phrase, sui generis. That's what this is mean. This is one of a kind. This is a one of a kind blessing because it's not just going to be blessing for Isaac and Isaac's sake. It will be 
blessing on Isaac for your sake, for the world's sake. Abraham believed the gospel. That's what we know in all of his imperfections. And I've got to be honest with you. His imperfections have been encouraging to me. Probably shouldn't be that way. But if he was all perfect, it would break my spirit. I have seen his imperfections and it has given me some hope, but there's hope for me. Um, But we've seen his faith in spite of the imperfections. And as a result, he becomes the classic man of faith. So let's close here with the legacy this man leaves for us. And the New Testament writers certainly see that legacy. Uh, We see that he's an example of faith, but we also see spiritual dimensions here of his legacy. First of all, he becomes the paradigm for saving faith. Paul says that in Romans 4. He picks up the narrative of Abraham to say Abraham is the example of the man of faith. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham, Paul is saying Abraham believed God with regard to the promise that would be fulfilled in the son and that righteousness, now what righteousness was that? It was the righteousness of the coming one, okay? So they were saved on debit or credit and we were saved on debit and so Christ's righteousness was imputed to Abraham so many centuries before, even before Jesus came. It was credited to him as righteousness. So he becomes the paradigm. In fact, two verses later it says, God justifies the ungodly. Now that's encouraging because he's describing Abraham, but he's also describing us. So if, you're, if you perceive yourself tonight as ungodly and unrighteous, be of good cheer. Congratulations, you're qualified for salvation because that's the only one God saves. So he becomes the paradigm for faith, saving faith. Okay, we're not done here. I'm about to get in your business. He's also the paradigm for faith and works. James chapter two. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? You say, that sounds so unreformation-like. Well, let me finish this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed in his works. So we know that James and Paul are not contradicting each other. They have different audiences. Paul is, is writing to a people who are misunderstanding the nature of grace. And so they reason that that I must do something in order uh, to to, uh, earn merit salvation. Yes, it's grace, but it's got to be my performance as well. Paul says, no, it's all of grace. It's all of grace. You are saved by works, but you're saved by the works of Christ. James is speaking to people who are really reveling in greasy grace. The original, I'm not going to say that. People who believe in once saved, always saved. 
Well, see, once saved, always saved is absolutely true, but it's a partial truth masquerading as a whole truth. Because it's once saved, always being saved. So he's addressing people who believe that you can have just a mental ascent of faith and it not impact your whole life. And he says, no. If you're truly saved, works will accompany your faith. Works will be the fruit of the root of grace by faith. That's James, and Abraham is the paradigm for that. How about faithfulness? Abraham becomes the paradigm for faithfulness. Hebrews 11, faith's obedience. Hebrews 11, verse eight, listen to this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. All God said to him was, go, go to the land I will show you. And God hits a moving target. By the way, none of us virtually know where we're going. We don't know what God's plans are for us. And that's beyond your pay grade to know. Your job is to obey today. I heard Adrian Rogers say one time, if you want to stay in the will of God, stay obedient to him for the next 15 minutes of your life. If you keep that mentality, you'll be at the right place at the right time as God unfolds his plan for you. Thy word is a lamp, not a spotlight. Abraham went, not knowing where he was going. But in due time, God said, here. How about faith's? Sojourn, Hebrews 11, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents. He didn't hold on too tightly to the things of this world. You know that. You cannot keep the things of this world. Every chapter ends, whether it be a job, a vocation, a ministry, a relationship, Abraham saw life through the lens of a pilgrim. Imagine going into a hotel room and buying paint and new carpet. No one does that. It would be insane. Why? You're only there a moment. Or rearranging the chairs on the Titanic. That would be insane because you know it's going down. And, and so we're to approach life as a pilgrim, and Abraham is the paradigm for that. How about faith's hope? Hebrews eleven ten. he was looking forward to the city that has no foundations, who designer and builder is God. Just finished a biography on Jonathan Edwards. He and his wife suffered so greatly, and they saw it as a blessing because it, it taught them to, to see the created order as something not to love too much. Their longing that they had for God was created through the crucible of pain and suffering. How about faith's confidence? Hebrews eleven eleven. by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man... And him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. By the way, he did not see that 
fully um, most of the blessings and promises that were given to him were, were achieved or unfolded after his death. You don't know the impact your life is going to have. It will outlive you, though, if you're a faithful person. How about faith's longing? Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Faith sacrifice, Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. We won't be called to offer up our sons in the same way, but it just may be there's something you love too much, and God may call you to give that up for his sake. Now, here's the, the good news from that. We see faith's reasoning, Hebrews eleven nineteen. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What, what he's saying there is you can't outgive God. You can't out-sacrifice the provision of God. If God calls you to do something hard, he's going to make provision for that that will be greater than anything that you could sacrifice in faith. One more point. We've seen Abraham was the paradigm for saving faith and faith in works and faithfulness from Hebrews 11. But finally... His legacy, and you go, you sound like a broken record here. Well, the Bible in many ways is a broken record because it's about one person. Abraham is the father and also the one in whom the hope of the world would come. Let me close this narrative on Abraham with just these words that we've read before. Galatians 3. By the way, why is Paul writing Galatians? He's writing to a largely Gentile church who are being assaulted by what were known as the Judaizers. Who said, if you're really going to be saved, yes, it's by grace and through faith, but you've also got to become a Jew. You've got to be circumcised like a Jew. You've got to keep the Sabbath and all of the various festivals like a Jew. And Paul writes to correct that. And here's what he says. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. And here's verse 29. I love this verse. Writing to a Gentile church, largely Gentile. And if you are Christ, as you belong to Christ, you've been united to Christ by grace through faith, then you are Abraham's offspring. You, you don't have to, in other words, worry about becoming a Jew. You are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. What does that mean? It means joint heirs in Christ who is the heir of all things. He is the greater Isaac. That's our inheritance. And here's the good news. We're going to die. That's not good news. But we just have a foretaste of that inheritance right here. Just a small snippet 
of that inheritance. But there's one coming that's going to stagger our imagination. That's why Peter says, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you. That's a word to every believer here tonight. But we also know as Adam and the musicians come forward that it's not yours by osmosis. You have to be united to the heir in order to be a joint heir. Paul says we are joint heirs, right? Romans 8. But we are joint heirs not because we're born into that family. You have to be born again into that family. And so I would ask, if you are not a part of that family tonight, cry out to God. He loves to answer this prayer. Lord, save me. Give me the new birth that I might repent and believe and be united to Christ and be joint heirs with the heir of all things, the offspring of Abraham. Let's stand and sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.